Some people are always grumbling because roses have thorns. I am thankful that thorns have roses. Bit trite, I know, from my opening quote, but um, that one came to mind today. And uh, by the way, that was uh, that was said evidently by Jean-Baptiste Alphonse Carr. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Those of you French French speakers probably straighten me out, but uh, I think he's more 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 commonly known as Alphonse Carr. Uh, same guy, by the way, who said, "The more things change, the more they stay the same." Uh, French novelist, writer. Journalist, I think, uh, and apparently also kind of a rascal. Uh, there's some story about how he was engaged to some woman, an actress. This is in the 1800s, I think 1830, something like that. And uh, apparently, um, <laughs> before they got married, he um, like borrowed all her money. I don't know how you borrow all of someone's money, <laughs> but he borrowed all her money, and you know never paid it back, and. Uh, I think he ended up marrying somebody else. Uh, so, you know, nobody's perfect, I guess. But I, but he did have the insight to, uh, to note that, you know, it's not necessarily that roses have thorns. There are thorns in the world. And, uh, and some thorns have roses. Here's why I was uh, thinking about that. Now, uh, first, first of all, I have to tell you that I know my last, the last two episodes have been, uh, you know, the ranty ones, you know, like something's going on in the world and I got something I want to say about it, uh, in the world of oil and gas. And, uh, and I do always tie it somehow, somehow I managed to find at least one rubber band that connects it back to oil field ingenuity. Uh, and so, so I was fully prepared today. I am still fully prepared to, uh, to go back to back into historical historical storytelling mode, and um, because you know we left off uh, with well the whole the whole story of the offshore drilling, which climaxed in Project Mohole, um, and in in somewhere in all the storytelling, you know I think maybe it wasn't there so much as prior to that when we talked about some of the early finds in the U.S. and, and anticlines and, and salt domes. And uh, let's see, there was, there was some, there was one episode where we got into, uh, you know, the, the, the very beginning, the early geologists and uh, the beginning of that area of, of uh, science that uh, obviously plays a, plays a major role in our ability to continue to power the world ladies and gentlemen, but, um, uh, and it touched, I think it was maybe, I guess maybe it was on the boat, uh, where, um, you know, the, the, what was the name of the boat? The Cuss One, uh, sailing uh, out to, uh, to, to try to, uh, you know, the whole Project Mohole thing, um, the deepest hole in the world. But anyway, go back and listen to episode, I don't know, it's like three or four episodes, two, two episodes back, something like that. Uh, and somewhere in there, we touched on there were some early geophysicists getting into uh, into the action, um, you know, and it was the '40s. So, um, so the early geologists they were you know like early like you know nineteen even maybe late eighteen hundreds. Who was that guy? I can't remember. I never can remember that guy. The first geologist in the oil and gas world. Um, 
you know, and then there was some early geophysics work that began uh, not with seismic, of course, but with other types of data like gravity and um, and something called a magnetometer. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know if that's the right way to say it. it I, I would guess the scientific pronunciation is more like magnetometer. So it's something I don't know. I like calling it a magnetometer. Um, sounds like something that should be in an old comic book, but. Uh, um, so I'm, I'm prepared to, so there's some kind of fun stuff in there when the geophysicists started, uh, finding new ways to look at, at data, at actual data, you know, geologists are more qualitative, even today, right? Geologists are more qualitative, not that they don't look at data, not that they don't do math, but you know, the, the, the typical, uh, thinking is geologists are more qualitative and geophysicists are more quantitative. I've worked with a lot of both of them actually, and, um, fascinating people, those geos. And, uh, and so we, we want to, there's some, there's some fun stuff there that I want to talk about. But first, but first, um, I just can't let this go by. I can't let this go by. So if you don't want to hear about this, just hit this, you know, you, you all know how to hit the skip button, just fast forward. But, but I want to say, I think, I think this is worth I think this is worth noting because in the last, in our last exciting episode, when I was on a rant about um, this California suing uh, these five oil companies because, and it's been in the news now for over a week. And, and uh, so I'm sure you've all, you're all up to speed. Um, and, and so last week I kind of laid out this whole reason why that's dumb. A couple of reasons. Um, not the least of which is you don't, you don't chop away at the ladder that you're standing on while you're waiting for the new one to come along. However, um, uh, I, I got, there's another, there's another aspect of this, which became evident when I saw this, um, this, this new, new it. So this is, I don't know what's today. Today is what, what is today? Like the 22nd, the 22nd. So this uh, this particular headline was from yesterday, so it's been a week since the whole we're suing these five oil companies, um, and, uh, and again, I don't know how they picked those five, but fine. Uh, I guess maybe because they've operated in California, so therefore they're the ones that have contributed the most to these horrific conditions that Californians are now suffering under. Um, so here's uh, here's an article. Uh, from something called Colorado Newsline. And it says, California is suing big oil. Why doesn't Colorado? And there we have it. The dominoes have begun the fall, ladies and gentlemen. And you go on to read that whoever wrote this article, whatever short-sighted, simple-minded person uh, wrote this, uh, they're predicting, or they're saying that, you know, here it is. Some observers predict that the California action could unleash a wave of climate lawsuits against big oil in states across the country. And that should include Colorado. I guess, yeah, this is, the, this is a Colorado publication, so that's why they're saying, hey, we should, damn it, we need to get in on this action. In fact, right here, climate change 
is a primary factor in these disasters. Remember the disasters, the wildfires and the and the dwindling water supplies and the extreme heat, all that, all that stuff. Climate change is a primary factor in these disasters, which are costing the state and its residents billions of dollars. So why shouldn't the lying fossil fuel behemoths pay for what they've done? says that. I'm still reading, folks. I didn't make that part up. These lying bastards, they need to pay for what they've done. All right. Well, let's, let's, let's look at that for a second. Because this is, the, this, is the, this is really the emphasis. All right. Let's leave out the part about who knew what, when, and what caused what, and everything, all the other business. Let's assume it's all true. Um, in spite of the fact that, you know, well, let's just move on. Let's assume it's all true. And uh, now there's these damages, right? Remember, I said you got you got a lawsuit, you got to have damages, and so so they're really they're really leaning into this. It's cost, you know, each state and the people of each state have had to pay big money. I'm talking about big money. It has cost them because of these jackasses over here with all of their oil production. So. Why shouldn't they have to pay? And so, all right, fine. Let's uh, let's look at that. Let's assume that it's all it's all true. Let's assume it's all true. They knew. They did it. They did it anyway. They lied. Everybody went along with it. Blah blah blah. Whatever. Okay. Now, now, and let's assume that the the that the cause and effect is, is is accurate, and that that the money that the states have had to spend on these disasters is uh is is largely due to this whole oil business now fine so so they're gonna pay so we're gonna we're gonna assess the damages we're gonna say all right well we think we've spent we've spent you know a billion dollars over here and a billion dollars over there and Oh, uh, you guys, we're not saying you're 100% responsible, but you're probably 96, 97% responsible. So we're going to, that's, the, we're going to assess those damages. Now, if I were Mr. Exxon or Mr. Chevron, I would say, okay, fine, fine. We'll pay. But first, let's net out of what we owe you, whatever benefits your state and your citizens have received from our industry whatever benefits they've received uh, that you, Mr. State of California, Mr. State of Colorado, that you didn't have to pay for. Because we're going to compensate the state for what you get. Like, like, I'm out of pocket here. I had to pay for all this stuff. Okay, well, how much are you really out of pocket? Because there's a lot of stuff that your citizens have received. There's a lot of things in the way of improved uh, way of life and uh, and uh, affordable uh, power to you know to bring into homes to heat homes and and to cool homes and transportation so like all of that quality of life stuff let's net that because you didn't because Mr. Colorado Mr. California Mr. whoever whatever state is is claiming this you didn't have to pay for that right your your citizens got that from us. Um, now they had to they have to pay as consumers, right? You have to like it doesn't come completely free, but the innovation and the like somebody had to invent this shit. Somebody had to 
bring it into reality. Somebody had to make it possible to get the, the, the energy to the places where it needed to be so that people's lives could be better. And somebody had to figure out how to keep the supply coming at the, an adequate rate at a reasonable cost. So I'm not talking about they got, I'm not saying they got the electricity for free. I'm not saying they put the gas in their cars for free, but if you're, if we're looking at this and by the way, we're looking at, they want to look at this at a scope of 50 years, 60 years, whatever, 70, like they want to go back. So if you want to go back, then what you have to kind of factor into the bill of how much do we owe you is what benefit has society gotten? So, so the, so the, so the, the, what's the opposite of benefit? So the damage to society has been these these weather situations or whatever that we've had to pay, that the state has had to pay for. But the benefit is everybody's life is way better than it would have been if uh, they didn't have all this uh, affordable uh, power that not only can they, is it affordable, it, it's a steady supply and it's, and it comes to where they need it. So all that, all that shit had to be invented and engineered and brought into existence. Now, state of California, state of Colorado, state of whoever, you didn't have to pay for all the R&D. You didn't have to pay for all of the engineering and the construction and the distribution. Like you, you got all, like all that intellectual work that went into that, you got that for free. So let's put a price tag on that. What kind of price tag could we put on? And, and, you know, or maybe a different way to look at it is, well, okay, what if we just take all that away? Say, uh, okay, you're right. We shouldn't have been doing that all that time. So let's, let's just subtract that out of society now because you got it for free. So we're taking it back because, you know, we're going to have to pay you all this money. So we need everything we can get. So we're going to shut down all the gas stations, right? Like you see where I'm going. It, it doesn't, um, <laughs> the and this and this comes back to uh what's that guy's name alphonse Carr. thorns have roses and if you're going you have to consider the whole transaction not just uh okay well i sat down over here and these thorns poked me in the ass so now like somebody owes me something for that Whoever, whoever, whoever put the, whoever put the damn roses on the park bench now owes me money because the thorns, you know, like my ass is bleeding now. So, <laughs> but what I'm leaving out, what I'm, what I'm forgetting to tell you is, oh, but I did, I did scoop up the roses and, uh, and I brought the roses home to my wife who was, who was mad at me. And, uh, um, and you know, I was in the dog house, but I gave her the roses and now she's happy. So now I got this benefit in my life over here on account of the rose. So those thorns had roses and I got benefit from those roses. Uh, cause now I get to sleep, you know, in my bed again. Um, in spite of the fact that I also got like, like thorn holes in my ass. So it's the whole transaction. And so when we come into this and saying, well, these guys need to be held accountable for that. Oh, we're not, you're not looking at the whole transaction. And I know there's no real, there's no real accounting method to figure out, okay, well, what's the, what's the financial benefit from 50, 60 years of innovation uh, so that people can, you know, cooler homes and get to their jobs and do all those things. But, but just in principle, in principle, 
There is real monetary value that has been brought over the decades to the fine citizens of these places. And, uh, and I don't think it's the sort of stuff that anybody wishes that we didn't have or would think that it'd be all right if it wasn't here. And so if we're going to settle up the debt, we've got to look at the whole transaction. And that's all I had to say about that. All right, now, on to geophysics, uh, which we'll probably just, um, I'm not going to get, not going to get through the whole story today because I, you know, I burned up half the episode on the continuing, ongoing, irritating lawsuit situation. But, um, but some fun stuff, in, I know this sounds crazy, but there's some fun stuff in the history of geophysics. And it all started, at least in terms of how it really began to impact the oil and gas industry. It all started with this guy right here. Now, uh, oh boy, he was Hungarian. So, uh, and of, you know, there are some languages that I have some like reasonable understanding of how to pronounce. And then there are some that I have no idea. And this is, this falls into the no idea category. So those of you from Hungary, uh, <laughs> just, you might want to just hold your ears for this part. All right. So this guy's name, his, his complete name, he was a baron. So Baron Laurent Etovos de Vasarasanamini. Panamana. Dun, 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 dun. I, <laughs> He, I think, I think uh, colloquially, he was known as Laurent Etovos. Maybe, maybe I'm getting that right. Etovos. Anyway, uh, smart guy, this uh, Mr. Laurent. He was uh, born in 1848. So, uh, you know, he probably did most of his work around the turn of the century, or 1900, late 1800s, early 1900s. And uh, he made it all the way to 1919. And he started out going to uh, law school, um, but then he changed his mind. I actually, hold on, I think I got I got something on him right here in in uh, Groundbreakers. There it is, ground the Groundbreakers book. Uh, as you as you may recall, I do refer to this book sometimes. It's it's a great history of all the all the smart inventions and technology and and innovation in the oil and gas business. And let's see, we got yeah, they got they got a little. They got a little bit on him in here. Uh, he was, uh, oh, so he studied law, but in a letter to his father in 1867, those of you who don't remember writing letters, it was, you would actually get a pen and a piece of paper and, and write stuff on it. And then you would, you know, fold it up and put it in an envelope and, and it would, and it would ma you'd mail it to somebody else who would wait for the letter to come. And then when it came, they would read it. Um, then when they, all right. Am I, am I pushing it too far? Okay, let's get back to Laurent. Um, uh, he wrote a letter to his father, and he announced in the letter, I was born with ambition and a sense of duty, not only to one nation, but toward the whole of humanity. In order to satisfy these urges and to retain my own individual independence... My aim in life will be best achieved as far as I can see at present if I follow a career in science. So I don't know how his, how his dad felt about that because his, his father was a, you know, was a politician and, a, and uh, probably a lawyer himself. And, um, 
you know, I don't know about in 1867, whether it was, whether it was like now, you know, you say you want to be a scientist, it's cool. But back then, you know, maybe not so much. And uh, so he decided to follow a career in science. And uh, anyway, I'm going to skip over all the details to say this is the guy, this is the guy who created, first created the torsion pendulum. Now, for those of you who don't know what a torsion pendulum is, um, imagine... Imagine, well, actually, I'll give you a practical example. So remember those clocks that people used to have? Uh, my grandmother had one, I know. It was usually like in the in the living room, like the fancier living room, you know, and it was this clock and it was kind of under a, under a glass, a, like a tall glass dome. And there was the face of the clock. And then like, like down below the clock, there was a, a horizontal kind of rotating thing. It had like three... They're usually gold colored and had like three balls at the end of like uh, three arms, and it would, and it would those like the, it would spin one way until it stopped, and it would spin the other way until it stopped, and then it would spin back until it, and that's what kept the clock going. Uh, torsion pendulum clock. Sometimes it's called the anniversary clock. I believe that's what they used to call it. Uh, I don't know why. I guess maybe it was a common to give give it to people on their anniversary. Anyway, that that's a torsion pendulum. So you um, you have a, some sort of a disc uh, suspended, like well, you have you have some sort of fixed mount at the top, and then you got uh, a torsion spring uh, or uh, you know a piece of wire or something. So you know torsion spring, right? Like it's a you know a wound spring, kind of like on a mousetrap or um, like a clothespin torsion spring. So. So imagine that only stretched kind of vertically and fixed to something at the top. And at the bottom is some sort of a disc. Might be weighted, right? Whatever. And um, and believe it or not, and this just blows my mind. Like I like I've I've read about this, like I, I guess I get it in principle. I'm not a physicist, but um, and I don't play one on TV, but uh, this guy, this thing can like tell you shit about like gravity and what's under, <laughs> under the ground. And I don't really, um, you know, I don't really get it. So, so those of you who do get it, I would love to send me an email, Michael at OGGN.com. And maybe you can explain it to me, uh, because it, I mean, I get it, but it's like this thing, this simple disc hanging from on this spring, which I, I get how it can spin back and forth and all that. Um, but the device, uh, so it met, so not only it measures the direction of the force of gravity, but it also measures you know, changes, um, in the force of gravity, like relative to the horizontal plane. So, um, uh, let's see. I got I got some notes on this. Oh yeah, here we go. It determines the distribution of masses in the Earth's crust. This is like a, I mean, this is not far from a divining rod in my mind, my simple mind. <laughs> I don't quite understand how this this hanging on a spring, you know, can tell you distribution of masses in the Earth's crust, but apparently it can. And um, and those of you who have, are in this part of the industry, you're right now you're going, yeah, of course, man, we've been using these things for a hundred years. They're great. Um, and there's all kinds of, and as you can imagine, there's been all sorts of advances in how they're designed and engineered and things like this, but the, but the physics are the same. This is how 
El Tovos describes his balance. So this is a guy that came up with this thing. And so here's how he describes it. Uh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to give you this straight, straight from his, uh, well, I was going to say straight from his mouth, but it's probably his pen. It was just a simple straight stick that I used as an instrument. So I think this is in response to, cause he became famous for this and he traveled all over the world. And unfortunately he never patented the thing. Uh, well, or, or fortunately, I guess maybe for the rest of us. Um, and he became quite well known for this thing. And uh, I, so I can I'm, I'm not sure this, this little bit that I'm reading this quoted from him. I don't know what the context is, but I, the way I imagine it is, is, uh, is a bunch of people flocking around. I'm saying, Mr. You know, like a press conference, Mr. Laurent, tell us, tell us how, how did you create this amazing device? And he says, Hey, it was just a simple straight stick that I used as an instrument specially loaded at both ends, enclosed into a metal sheath to protect it from the wind and temperature changes. Sure. Yeah. You got to think about that kind of stuff upon this stick. Every, okay. Now follow me on this. Upon this stick, every single mass, be it near or far, exerts a directing force, but the wire upon which it hangs resists, and whilst resisting, it twists, with the degree of this twist showing us the exact magnitude of the forces acting upon the stick. This is like Star Trek stuff. I mean, <laughs> I know... Again, those of you in the, uh, in this uh, in this field of study are like probably saying, "Come on, man, this is this is simple stuff." But it it sounds kind of crazy to me. Anyway, uh, he refers to it as a column balance, and uh, that is all there is to it. That that's what he said. That's all there is to it. It's simple, and um, uh, and he basically says we can peer into such depth of the crust of the earth that neither our eyes nor our longest drills could reach. So here he is. He's got this thing hanging from a stretchy spring and he watches how it twists and turns and somehow it tells him what's on it. Now the, the, um, uh, kind of a, kind of a fun part about this is, uh, so this, so this all goes to, um, torsion balance and inertial mass and gravitational mass and things like this. Anyway, somehow all of this work that he did was later used by guess who, guess who, Mr. Einstein in his, uh, as he worked out his theory of general relativity, actually some of it was based on the work that, that, uh, that Mr. Laurent, what's his last name? I forgot it already. Eotovos, uh, I got to move on in the story because otherwise I'm going to have to try to keep saying this guy's name, but brilliant stuff. And, uh, and in fact, and in fact, um, it ended up being used and still, I think, I think still is used, uh, for like mine exploration and searching for minerals and oil and coal. Um, and, uh, and in fact, I read somewhere that, you know, the, in the, um, as the oil and gas, as the, well, you know, initially it was mostly oil, right? But as the oil business took off in North America, in the United States, some of the, some of the really big, the big, uh, or most of the big payoff, you know, fields were, uh, were discovered with the help of this instrument. So there you have it. That's, that was really the beginning of geophysics uh, in, um, in exploration. And, uh, of course we always think, you know, nowadays we think about, um, 
we think about seismic, typically we think of geophysics. But of course, you know, this was before all, and this is the turn of the century. This is like 1900-something. And uh, uh, and they started, well, well, that's when he created the torsion spring. But when it came into use, um, I don't want to guess, it was maybe 20, uh, 20 years later. Uh, yeah, what do we got here in... Uh, in Groundbreakers, they say that uh, basically it was it, until the 1920s, uh, you know, drilling for oil was kind of like kind of hit or miss, right? Uh, geology, geology helped in terms of understanding the anticlines and the salt domes and things like that, but it was kind of a it was kind of a follow your nose and see and look and look and see what your neighbor was doing and kind of like kind of like the Permian. <laughs> well, where are they drilling? We'll drill over here. And, uh, and, and then the, the geophysical methods came along and, uh, but, but from what I can tell, this guy, this was the first big, the first big thing, this gravity, gravity, uh, this gravitational, you know, I analysis, uh, from the Baron was, uh, was the first, uh, here we go. This type of instrument would become a standard tool in the oil industry after world war one. So world war one ended in what? Uh, early, early mid 1920s. So uh, pretty soon everybody had their little torsion pendulums out there, and they were finding oil. And it's a damn good thing that they did, not only so that we could have all of the comforts of modern life, but also so that we would have somebody to blame for all of the thorns in our ass. While meanwhile we're carrying the roses in our arms. 